Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. My guest today is Deb Calvert. She is an inductee in the Sales Hall of Fame, a keynote speaker, and sales effectiveness consultant as president of People First Productivity Solutions. Deb served prior as an instructor of sales development principles for UC Berkeley Extension, a director of sales training for Knight Ritter, and director of advertising operations, sales management and sales for the Kansas City Star. We are going to tap her extensive experience to explore one of the most important challenges many sales organizations face today, and that is getting discovery right. Evolvers, please welcome Deb Calvert. Tom, I'm delighted to be here with you and with all the Evolvers. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. Man, now that our best account execs, they're constrained to selling from their home offices and the 13-inch screen, it seems to me like many of them are falling back on old methods to fill the Zoom meeting screen. I'm definitely seeing in the meetings, there's too much traditional linear PowerPoints being placed up. There's old school show everything demos. What's going on, Deb? Are you seeing that same thing? I am. And I think it's an attempt to offer value and substance. I think people are a little bit uncomfortable with being the center of attention because they can see themselves too. And, and that's not comfortable. But fundamentally, I, I really do think this is a misunderstanding about what buyers want to see. So sellers, right, think of it just like any other conversation. You're face to face with somebody and you want to be comfortable. You, you want to be nimble with that face to face communication, even if it's video. I would say just don't be so eager to do show and tell because that show and tell, those slides that you have, that demo you're going to do, by its very nature, that's generic and it's lower value and you're completely missing that opportunity to establish a human to human connection and buyers want that mm -hmm. and they need it and you're, when you're masking your face, you're missing a huge opportunity to differentiate yourself. I think that's a really good point, Deb. You know, when you're in an in-person meeting, the PowerPoint may be up or the demo may be up, but there's a lot more interaction that goes on. It doesn't replace the whole screen and make the videos just little thumbnails. And, and I definitely see that um, sellers are interacting less when they have those PowerPoints up. And we know that, you know, in this digital and remote selling environment, discovery is more important than ever. Um, yet many sellers either aren't doing it, or if they are doing it, is still, again, a lot of old school uh, bant kind of discovery, which isn't really discovery. It's much more about qualifying. Talk about that and, and the differences that you see. Well, okay, yeah. First of all, for anybody not familiar with the acronym, we should probably mm -hmm. define that. So BANT sure. is, um, it's very self-focused for a seller. It's stuff you need to know. But if it's all you know, then you've, again, missed that human-to-human -human connection. So the letters BANT, they stand for B, that's budget. It's the budget that your buyer has and can spend, the approved budget that they're going to have to work with on, on purchasing whatever sort of product you're selling. Mm -hmm. And the A goes hand-in-hand hand with that because that is 
the authority to make the budget decision, to be able to make the commitment. So you're looking for what is the budget, who has the authority. The third one, a little closer to a place where you can get a, a connection established, and that's the N. It stands for need. But in BANT, it's described as the need for your product. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a little bit more self-focused and a little narrower. And then finally, the T is, is the timeline for making a purchase. So really, BANT, the best it does is it qualifies who is most likely and ready to buy from you right now. And that's pretty limited. It's, it's all, all those four letters, they're all focused on helping you to sell something versus focusing on a broader definition of the N, which would be the need not just for your products, but the overarching needs for that buyer. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have a fertile ground to do true discovery. And so as we look at many of the buyers today, budget and timeline are very uncertain, right? A lot of organizations typically are not setting their budgets or they're not in stone right now. And so if you are qualifying out companies that might not have a defined budget in mind that's carved out yet today or a defined timeline, you could be losing a lot. And then as you indicate, it focuses on selling when you're using BANT, not on helping, which I think is ultimately what we want to get our sellers to do as modern sellers today, right? I agree. Not only that, but when you focus on band, especially budget, and the decision to, uh, to make something happen with that budget, what you're also doing without realizing it is you're commoditizing your product. You're also making it sound as if price or the monetary consideration is the only reason that someone should choose you or that you should choose them. You immediately put it into the realm of something transactional versus having those much more important conversations about value and about differentiation and about meeting an overall need, being the solution that's going to um, be the, the one they have to choose because there's more to it than just that, that price consideration. So Deb, when we look at the research and in preparing this, I, I pulled a couple of metrics that I thought were interesting when it comes to discovery. And the numbers aren't that good. 57% of buyers, so a good majority, indicate that their sales reps could do a much better job of discovery. And a result, one in five buyers indicate their sales reps have a poor understanding of their business needs and even delay and avoid meetings as a result. And that was primary intelligence. And they also went on uh, to say that, you know, if you do get discovery right and you do provide value or perceived value, that sellers are more, uh, buyers are more willing to take meetings with sellers more often and earlier in the engagement, which I know a lot of organizations are fearful with how long it takes now for sellers to engage. But I think the part of it is that discovery seems to be a big weakness or perceived weakness in the buyer. So what represents good discovery? Like if you were to guide someone, a sales enablement uh, group, a sales leader to guide on discovery, um, what is good discovery? What does it look like? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, let me add one more piece of research to underscore what, what yours also says. Mm -hmm. uh, 
we did a Qualtrics panel study with 530 B2B buyers. That's reported in the book, Stop Selling and Start Leading. But it adds context to those findings you mentioned because it tells us behaviorally exactly what buyers want from sellers, what behaviors will cause them to be more likely to meet with you and more likely to buy from you. And among those behaviors, some of the ones that ranked very near the top were that buyers want a two-way dialogue and they want a focus on what's relevant, meaningful, and personal to them. And by contrast, they're, they're disengaged by overly generalized questions that they perceive as being self-serving for the seller. So what represents a good discovery is not my opinion, it's about what's effective and it's about what buyers want. And the reason I call it a dialogic needs assessment is because it's about that two-way dialogue between the buyer and the seller. The opposite of that would be a diagnostic needs assessment. That's kind of old school. That's, that's a bunch of scripted questions. It feels like a one-size-fits-all survey. It's boring. It doesn't have natural conversation, which is driven by curiosity and intent to help, um, which has the seller tuning in to pay attention to facial expressions and, and to pauses and cues that the buyer might be giving, right? That, that's a genuine two-way dialogue, questions and answers going both ways. So an effective, a good discovery, it's human to human, it's really focusing on what's important to the buyer and why whatever it is is important to them. It has drilled down natural follow-up questions to probe the things that have some sort of uh, a, a reaction or something that, that it triggers within the buyer. And you're picking up on that and responding just like two people would in any other conversation. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's not boring. It's, it's um, interesting to the buyer. So if you can replace diagnostic with dialogic in your discovery, and you can supplement qualifying questions with quality questions that build rapport and relationships, then you're going to hit all the goals that should be a part of, of your discovery process. Spot on. I think that's really, really good advice. Now the challenge becomes how you implement it. I think you and I are probably, uh, with all of our experience and of selling in all these different situations. I know I go in with just the natural mindset of, I'm gonna co-create this solution right with the buyer, directly based on their needs, and mm -hmm. just kind of have a natural dialogic approach. Um, most younger sellers uh, or newbie sellers may not have that capability. So how do you instill that ability to have that natural conversation, but still have it be um, probing and value add and not just be a random conversation? You know, I, there are skills for asking quality questions and the book Discover Questions gives the purposes of asking questions and the, the ways to ask the questions. So there are skills that you can develop. But even before that, especially with people who are newer to selling, it's about truly understanding 
what you're supposed to accomplish when you're asking the questions in the discovery phase. Mm -hmm. I, I see so many people, you probably do too, Tom, they come out of the discovery meeting and it was a you know decent meeting. They captured some notes, they got all their questions asked, but they don't know really why they ask certain questions or what they're supposed to do with the information. So I think it's first important to know the five reasons that you're asking those questions. When you know them, when you internalize them, they're going to help you make better decisions during the, the discovery call. So, you know, first of all, yeah, you got to qualify the buyer, but that's just one out of the five goals. Mm -hmm. And the second one, you and I have both mentioned it a few times here, that's that you really do need to also establish rapport and begin building a relationship with that buyer, a, a positive one where you differentiate yourself and, and you make them eager to, to meet with you uh, beyond that, that first meeting. Okay, third one. This gets missed more often than anything, I think, and that is to understand, and I, I mean really understand the motivations of the buyer. Mm -hmm. What do they value and why? Not just which one of your products or solutions do they like the best, but separate from that, before they ever are thinking about your product, what do they value and why? What's going on in their world? So the, that's three. The fourth uh, goal of a, of a good discovery should be to intensify the buyer's interest, right? They took a meeting with you because they're sort of interested in what you might have to offer. But you want to magnify or intensify that interest and get them to the stage where they really want what you have to offer. That's their buyer's process to go from interest to desire, eventually to action. Your questions should help intensify that initial interest. And then finally, don't leave that discovery meeting until you are ready to be able to make clear, compelling links between the unique needs of that buyer in this moment and your product or solution. And to make those links so clear that they're gonna feel like they have participated in creating what they want. They've co-created it with you. It's, it's something that really, really engaged them. And I found that was a long answer to your question, yeah, no, no, but I think no, all that's great. necessary. So let me <laughs> yeah. just repeat it back. So one is qualify, two is build rapport, three is you know find the motivation, both personal and business. Uh, four would be intensify, intensify the pain and um, the need that they have. So they're very motivated. And then five is link the needs very clearly with a solution which I feel like a lot of um, calls I'll listen into, there often is some good discovery and then it'll get time for the solution and somehow the demo or whatever's being done doesn't seem to line back with the needs. It's like, okay, then the wind-up toy goes and, uh, and off the demo goes uh, with barely a mention back to the needs and the buyer's still left to figure out that linkage. I, I see it too, whether the, whether the demo follows immediately or whether you come back to it some later time, another meeting, I, I, it's like, why did we bother having this whole discovery meeting? I if know. you didn't use that information to personalize, you missed it. Yeah. You missed the opportunity. Yeah. And one of the tricks that I try to use or hacks to teach um, an up and coming seller is make sure that you're documenting these elements, right? So make sure you document the motivation. Make, make sure that you are um, quantifying the intensification 
So what is the cost of doing nothing for that customer? What do they think are the consequences of remaining at status quo? And then very clearly making sure that you're linking the solution back to the needs and have this documented so that Deb, when you have that follow-on meeting, what I see too often is a discovery meeting was conducted and then the follow-on meeting occurs without regard to that first meeting. And to me, you've got to reestablish because sometimes there's new players and even with the players you had before, just reminding everyone and making sure you're on the same page with regard to those motivations, intensifications and needs to solution linkage, document that back. So it's like, here's what we heard, and here's what we heard, how we think we can solve it. Now let me show you, one by one, exactly how we think we can solve this for you. And that structures that kind of follow-on meeting in a way that I think very few who don't use that are, are adept at doing. Any comments or feedback on that suggestion to sellers? Yeah, I mean, what you're really talking about now is higher level critical thinking. And it's essential because what you're, you have to make a causal link. The causal link is because you told me this, that's why I'm recommending this, <laughs> cause and effect. And if you can't make that kind of link in your own mind or in your own notes before you leave the discovery and move into the solution, you're not gonna have anything that's compelling it's just going to sound like a, a pitch, a generic pitch, the same one you'd give to anybody. And if the buyer can't see themselves in it with that cause and effect, that, that direct linkage, it's, it's very easy for them to think of something else or to focus on price as a differentiator. But when you've got them so embedded in the solution mm -hmm. that they can't unbundle it from the value, that's when they have to say yes. And that's that co-creation process. The co-creation is the need and aligning the solution with it in a way that's very special to them. And, and that's what I view as that co-creation process. Yeah, you, you get them to participate in creating what they want. That's the, the official research <laughs> phrase out there about this, to, awesome. to get them to participate in creating what they want. It's like when you um, go to Subway or Chipotle or one of those restaurants pre-COVID where you could go down the bar and, and make the uh, sandwich or the burrito exactly what you mm -hmm. wanted with your own personal imprint on it. And if the product you sell doesn't have a lot of features that can be adapted and customized, you still get to let the buyer participate in creating what they want. Now though, it's about quantity. It's about service. It's about schedule for delivery. It's about how often are we checking in? Somehow they just need to be a part of, of framing what that's going to look like long-term. Now, when it comes to the questions themselves, I was having a conversation with um, Brent Adamson, the author of the Challenger sale, um, several months ago, this is a while back, and we were talking about good discovery and how challenger sometimes you can go in with your hypothesis and your point of view and then skip right to solution. And a lot of times folks were avoiding this kind of critical questioning along the lines of, you know, you qualify, your rapport, your motivations, your intensified pains, the need to solution mapping. Um, and he brought up the need for a very particular type of questioning that I wanted to get a read from you on. And that's kind of a Socratic technique. And I love this where 
you're almost acting through the process, particularly when it comes time to intensify the pain, to motivate change. Um, asking questions in a way that are designed to get the buyer to think about their own situation and put themselves in it and to raise self-awareness like a therapist would. Talk to that a little bit, Deb. Do you use that technique? Did you research anything about that? Yeah, so Socratic, for anybody who doesn't really understand that term, we should define it too. Um, Socrates and before him, Elicus was, they, they were um, Greek philosophers who used a form of argumentation to create dialogue, to stimulate people thinking. So instead of giving them an answer, you gave them questions that forced them to think about things in new ways to set, step outside their their confirmation bias and their previous experience and to look at things in a way that stimulated um, fresh perspective. Now, this is often misunderstood because it is not meant to be a way to lead somebody down a predetermined path. Yes, you may have a point you want people to see within that argumentation, but it's it's got to be more open because the uh, the ideal is learning both directions. So mm -hmm. I through my questions am causing you to look at something different and hopefully discover something new. But I am also through my own questions asking you to explain things and look at things in a way that I that might edify or clarify for me uh, what's going on here. So it's not as manipulative as some people um, interpret it to be. So I just wanted to, to put that out there. Yeah. Um, point. Yeah, and so the steps of that are, the, the steps of the Socratic method are to put something out there to make a declaration or a, a provocative statement or to define something, to, to put an opinion, something that people can react to. So that's what you were describing with Brent is you, you propose uh, something. Mm -hmm. And then you ask a question that raises an exception to that opinion or definition. So I might say to you, um, in my opinion, um, discovery is the most important part of the sales process because I, I do believe that <laughs> and uh, and then I would ask you a question I might say um, in your experiences what exceptions have you seen to discovery being important where have you seen it left out mm -hmm. and we then have a discussion and this is the two-way learning piece of it and what we are aiming for step three of the Socratic process is to now have uh, an opinion that has grown, that, that is perhaps collaborate, collaborative, so I've expanded my own thinking about it, maybe I've influenced your thinking about it, and with our new co-created definition, we have something that, that takes us forward to what's next. And Deb, I think that that's an element that could be added to a lot of the discovery, is this notion that you know, you, you've got something that ultimately you want to get the customer to, and there's obviously a mission. You've got only so many hours in the day, and you do have to make sure you're spending your time with the right customers and the right prospects as a seller. But at the same time, there isn't one sales call that I participate in where I don't feel like I, I feel like I've learned something from the prospect and the customer. And I almost seek to do that in the process. And I don't know if that makes a good seller or not. It sounds like it, it might from, from your research and your opinions. Talk about that a little bit. Do you think that's an important kind of aspect to have, you know, not 
certainly not selling, but helping, and then beyond helping, kind of this co-creation and co-learning aspect to it? Do you think that's kind of an, an even more enlightened way to sell? I do. And here again, I'm going to go back to what buyers told us in our research. The behaviors they prefer, that the blueprint of behaviors that they respond favorably to, are surprisingly not stereotypical selling behaviors. They're more like what we would define as leadership behaviors. Mm -hmm. And buyers do want the sellers they work with to lead them. They, they want to be guided to something new and different. Well, guiding someone, first of all, it means, yes, we do have a place that we're going, this place you have maybe not been before, and that's why you need a guide. But I'm going to keep you safe on the way there, and I'm going to make sure it's where you really want to go and that, that it's um, a good journey for you. So I'm guiding you. That's, that's leadership. And then uh, implied within all of that is also that we're going together. I'm not just giving you a map. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm taking you there. I'm side by side with you. We're in it together. And I'm looking out for your best interests. And to do that, there has to be trust, a relationship, a rapport. I have to challenge you. If, if it was so easy, you could go by yourself, then you wouldn't need to, a guide to begin with. And I have to remain very in, in lockstep with you. I, I have to make sure that I'm not leaving you behind or getting too far out ahead of you. So yes, there's critical thinking, there's relationship building, there's staying plugged in, there's a humility to learn and, and pay attention to someone else. Um, you mentioned being interesting. Well, really, you should be focused on being interested before you try to be interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think all of that is, is a part of, of what it looks like and what buyers want from us. Awesome. Now, we spoke about how this takes an elevated skill set and leadership skills and everything else. Can tools help in the process? Could they help maybe structure some of the questioning? Uh, for example, we've put together some um, dimensional capability maturity analysis to help structure some of the discovery questions and the diagnostic, not necessarily the dialogic on top of it. Um, and, you know, that can include scoring to help identify and highlight needs, some of which the organization might even know they had, um, can deliver peer comparisons and benchmarks. So you basically fill in the rubric and it can tell you kind of here's where you rank and here's where others like you rank. And also even maybe intelligent guidance and, and recommendations. But in our discussion, you know, that is definitely a structured diagnostic. It doesn't have that dialogue on top of it, which I think is still a very important element. So talk about tools and how you've seen maybe them used properly and how you would make sure that you still have this dialogue that goes with it. Yeah, I, well, let me say first, I do think tools can help and they can instruct and they can give you confidence and they can steer you in a new direction when needed. Having said all of that, it, let's say I was going to hire somebody to do some remodeling on my house. Mm -hmm. And if I were going to hire one out of two people, I would compare the skills of one who knows all the tools in the toolbox and is masterful at pulling out the right tool at the right time and making that tool create something marvelous. I would not pick the one who had 
all the tools in the toolbox, but had never used them or mm -hmm. had only used them haphazardly and was hammering when should be sawing or um, was inelegant in, in the way that they were twisting the wrench. I, I, and now I'm out of my own comfort zone. So <laughs> a fool, I'll stop the analogy. Yeah, the one, but, the one statement that we use is a fool with the tool is still a fool. So yes. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. I mean, anymore. yeah, tools are only as good as the carpenter using them. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so at the, even before tools or alongside giving people great tools, it's absolutely essential for sellers to have the core skills needed to use the tools. The tools aren't a replacement, they're not a shortcut. No matter how good the tools are, it still takes practice and discipline mm -hmm. and understanding of the desired outcome. What am I trying to build here? So um, I call it a combination of sales enablement and sales ennoblement. And when you have that whole package, that's where tools do the very best. I completely agree with that. And my best, um some of my best engagements were definitely tool assisted, but it was the dialogue that those tools helped to bring about in a structured way and guide me. Uh, but it really was that consultative conversation, the dialogue that we had on top of it, that was way more valuable. The tools were just a mechanism to do some of the, the probing or the measurement, um, just like a, a doctor would when they get you, you know, some diagnostic test results back but there's still that incredible interpretation of it. And then the guidance that gets provided on top of it and the ability to present that information in the right way to affect change. Gosh, that's even more important than that, right? Because you can diagnose and you can prescribe, but that doesn't mean that the patient always follows that prescription. And so there's a whole facilitation part that I think the dialogic adds on top of it. So a diagnostic plus the dialogic, I, I kind of love that concept that you're presenting, Deb. Yeah. Now, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we don't always choose the best doctor either. The one mm -hmm. who can quickly diagnose and write the prescription based on many years of experience, but is cold and has no bedside manner. Right? Okay. So uh, even in our own lives, we can see that it's not always the best, sometimes it's the best connection. Yeah, or one that's quick to prescribe, you know, a very maybe traditional approach, or maybe they've got a certain favorite drug that they always like to, to push, right? Uh, as opposed mm. to much more of a functional approach where they're really out to help. And that may not mean that they're prescribing anything at that point in time. Uh, so definitely agree with that. Now, let's turn a little bit to the sellers that we're we're hiring, uh, the rank of active listening was among the attributes that buyers most value from salespeople. However, this trait didn't even rank in the top five for sales managers in their hiring process for sales reps. And that's from LinkedIn's State of Sales Report 2020. So buyers are ranking the discovery traits extremely high and important. Uh, the, the active listening, the ability to, to kind of have that dialogic. Yet when we hire, it's mostly talking skills and selling skills, not necessarily discovery and listening skills that we're hiring for. Talk about that a little bit, Deb. Do you see a disconnect there? Yeah, I do. And it's unfortunate because this is all driven by these incorrect stereotypes about selling. It's a hyper-focus on closing and on seller personality, 
in those stereotypes. And we've got this kind of persona, even sales managers who, who know better still have this persona of someone who's gregarious and fast talking and polished. It's all about style. But what buyers are looking for is something substantial. And that includes empathetic listening. It includes the critical thinking skills we were talking about. And obviously, buyers want sellers to have a genuine desire to understand and meet their needs. Mm -hmm. But in a typical job interview on a resume, it, it's hard to spot those characteristics and abilities, much harder to spot than the outgoing, um, fast talker kind of a stereotype. So as long as we're reacting to and perpetuating that stereotype, we're not really responding to buyers, which I think is incredibly ironic, given that is what every sales manager tells every seller to do. <laughs> go, go meet buyer needs, but yet we, we don't even set up the system to do that. Yeah, and hiring the right people on your team is one of the most important aspects to accomplishing some of these goals. And like you said, it seems to be misprioritized. You know, if you're a young seller and you're listening to this and you want to differentiate yourself a little bit, you know, work on the active listening, work on discovery, make that, amplify that in your profile and in your toolbox of capabilities that you are dialogic. And I think it can help to really differentiate you as well as map to uh, a team that ultimately I think will get you the most success and also the skills that ultimately can get you the most success. What's the one piece of advice, Deb, that you'd like to leave our Evolvers audience with today? I would like to recommend that, that sellers step back, that Evolvers step back. And as you're stepping back, remember that a buyer, before they were ever a buyer, they were a person. And before you were ever a seller, you were just a person. So think more about selling human to human instead of seller to buyer. And then be natural because of that, right? Human to human, we, we know how to have conversations. So let's be natural in our conversations and develop that genuine intention to meet buyer needs. That intention and that, that humanness, that's what's going to shine through. And it will guide you in the discovery process, but it will also help you in, in everything you ever do as a seller because it will make you more accessible, more trustworthy, and more likely to be the person that a buyer feels they can really count on when it comes time to make their decision. Completely agree. I think that's one of the best ways to learn and improve is take that step back in the heat of the battle, in the heat of the moment, take that step back to gain the perspective, to become more human to human, and together with your buyer, be on that journey as their trusted guide. Deb Calvert, where can people find you online? Uh, well, I'd, I'd like to invite everyone to join me on LinkedIn. I enjoy conversations there. Uh, check out the website, peoplefirstps.com. That stands for People First Productivity Solutions. Um, and you can also go over to the salesexpertschannel.com for uh, me and a whole bunch of other sellers who are uh, experts in the field like you, and we're all looking to develop our expertise and share it there. Deb, thank you so much. We will share your LinkedIn address as part of the interview notes. It was an absolute pleasure, honor, and joy to have you with us today. 
Evolvers, thank Deb and keep evolving.